Hello and welcome to Talking You Retina, the official podcast of the European Society of Retina Specialists. I'm Jonathan McRae. In this podcast, we bring you expert discussions and interviews with leaders from the world of retina and beyond. We'll also keep you up to date with the latest news from the society. In this podcast, we're going to preview the Uretina keynote at this year's Congress in Amsterdam. We'll hear from the keynote himself, Professor Bertil D'Amato, consultant ocular oncologist at Moorfields and St. Eric's Eye Hospital, Karolinska Institute, Stockholm. And he'll be joined by his colleague, a consultant in vitreoretinal oncology, Mr. Carl Grunewald from the Royal Liverpool Hospital. They'll be talking about OncoVR, a new and exciting area which they both have sort of pioneered in a discussion chaired by Professor Heinrich Hyman from Liverpool University Hospital. Must be a great place if you have an eye problem at Liverpool. Professor Bertel D'Amato will be delivering his talk in Amsterdam in just a few weeks time. So don't forget to register at uretina.org. But let's get into it. Heinrich, great to have you back. Over to you. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Traditionally, ocular oncology and vitreoretinal surgery were two different subspecialities, but they seem to be merging over time now. And Bertel set up basically a new field here in Liverpool some years ago, and he's giving the keynote lecture on OncoVR, a new subspeciality. Bertel, what can we expect from your talk? Well, first of all, I'd be saying what um, OncoVR actually is and um, how important it is to have an onco-VR specialist as part of the oncology team. And you started the, to develop the field with Carl, who is on, on this podcast as well, some time ago in Liverpool. Can you tell me about the beginnings of this? Well, I used to perform onco-VR procedures myself. But when Carl Granwald came along expressing an interest, I knew he would do things much better than I could. And so... I welcomed him with open arms, and the rest is history. It's been really good to work with uh, Carl Grenwald and other onco-VR specialists because they're not only skilled in retinal surgery, but they also understand tumors, oncology, how these eyes behave, and so on. Carl, you're from the other camp. You're a full-blooded VR surgeon and covering the whole spectrum from retinal attachment over macular holes to ocular trauma. How did you feel about making your way into the field of oncology? I have to admit, originally when I started, my oncology knowledge wasn't that good because I only knew what I learned as a registrar. But my first exposure, as Bertel said, was to assist in cases where there has been a problem associated with a treatment of um, oncology patients. And I quickly realized that these procedures actually are very complex. So that you need to know a lot about VR surgery, but you do need to know about oncology. But one of the things that Bertel first taught me was to unlearn what you have learned as a vitreoretinal surgeon. Can you imagine making a hole in the retina and then leave it like that, cut into the choroid, no tamponade, no retinopexy. So it was difficult to make that initial adjustments. And you've been doing that for several years now. In the other direction, I mean, a lot of things come from VR to oncology, but have you learned from your oncology something you can use in your daily VR surgery as well? Well, there are three main things that I learned in oncology. That's post biopsies, end of resections, and then patients that had complications, for example, after local resections. And these cases all are extremely complex, especially 
to the complications cases. So you learn, for example, how to manage biopsies, but also a very important thing that I learned is how to manage the hemorrhage associated with so many of these procedures, be it end of resection or local resections. So that is the main things that I think that I've learned as a VR surgeon from doing oncology VR. And uh, some VR surgeons out there will occasionally be faced with an oncology case, but there's always great concern regarding potential grave consequences when you go into an eye with a tumor. How did you feel about that going into the field? Yeah, that, that it was very difficult. So let me put it like this. You, do, you cannot just perform a, a simple VR procedure on these cases. You have to approach it from a completely different viewpoint. And so I do not think VR surgeons should only do occasionally in uh, oncology VR. I think it is a, a job that should be done on a regular basis. And that is why Bertel has promoted this idea of oncology VR rather than just occasional VR doing oncology. Bertel, if we look at OncoVR, probably biopsy is the most common procedure uh, that uh, we are facing at the moment. I think basically you had the vision decades ago that this is going to be something that will be important in oncology in the future. In a nutshell, what information can we achieve with a tumor biopsy that we otherwise would not get? Well, with regards to uveal melanomas, the biopsy provides very important genetic information uh, apart from confirming the diagnosis because metastatic disease from uveal melanoma occurs almost exclusively in patients whose tumor shows chromosome 3 loss or BAP1 loss of function or a class 2 gene expression profile and to get that information you need to do a biopsy and one of the great things about having an, an onco-VR specialist as part of the team, is that they get better and better at it and can biopsy smaller and smaller tumors, even those that are less than one millimeter thick. Without doing a very big operation, they do follow a minimalist approach. And so the threshold for biopsy is much lower because it's a much quicker uh, operation to do and less complicated. Carl, there are different ways of doing a biopsy, ranging from fine needle aspiration biopsy to just a vitrectomy without a vitrectomy and a full vitrectomy with silicon oil tamponade and laser and things like that. I think you must have done more than a thousand biopsies now uh, of ocular melanoma. Can you tell us your standard fastball technique of the biopsy? Okay. So the first important thing is always to, in my opinion, is to have an image on the screen of exactly where you want to biopsy. Because I have encountered patients where there are different lesions. So normally the oncology will tell me exactly where to go. The setup is, is specific. I normally use 25 or 27 gauge. I have high pressure to start with, normally about 60 millimeters of mercury. And I have a very slow cutting rate of a thousand and high suction. And basically, all one have to do is once you go in, is to go at the area where you sample, want to sample the tumor. It is important when you put the probe into the tumor to put it in a correct position, which means that the port, the opening, does not show towards a big blood vessel. Because when you come out, there is always going to be some aspiration, some suction. And for you to free your port, 
the cutter from the retina, you have to just quickly tap the cutting, and if there's a big blood vessel, obviously you're going to go through that. So that is basically how you do it. Another thing that I would like to stress is you have to stay for a while in the tumor. It does not take 30 seconds. It will take 40 to 50 seconds that you try to stay in the tumor, maybe even moving in slightly different directions to get a good sample. This is the basic technique. So no vitrectomy, no laser, no tamponade, no cryo of the ports, none of that? Not at all. No. I have even in some cases made quite large retinotomies, sometimes inadvertently. And even in both cases, 99% of them has no problem at all. So it's never, never necessary to do any tamponade. It's not necessary to remove all the vitreous. Actually, that is the last thing you want to do, is you would like vitreous to be present. And another thing is there is no need for any pexy at all. Do you do it under local or general anesthesia? And how long would it take a routine biopsy? Uh, we usually encourage patients to have a local anesthetic because it takes so quick. There is no hemorrhage for which you have to wait, or there's no resampling required. It takes about 10 to 15 minutes. It's a very quick and short procedure. And what's your cutoff for, from the thickness? Two millimeters, three millimeters? In the beginning, of course, because the tip to port is quite small. Well, it's going to be larger than the tumor. We didn't, I didn't particularly like to do very small ones. But now, as you know yourself, we can do even normal thickness correct. So therefore, there is no limit anymore as to how small the tumor is. If you have, let's say, just slight thickening of a choroid, it is important not to then start in the lesion, start just adjacent, and like a snowplow, advance your port slowly towards the, the area of interest so that you can heap up the, the choroid and cut it that way. But there is no limit now. I can even do a biopsy on a normal thickness choroid. Well, thank you. These are really, really great tips for, for really surgeons who are looking into biopsies. I'm sure it's going to be more important in the future. Bertel, moving on to another controversial topic, uh, surgical resections of choroidal melanoma. You've got to brave, be brave to do it. Can you tell us how you came about cutting tumors out of the eye? I was very fortunate to serve an apprenticeship with a great mentor, Professor Wallace Folds at the Tennant Institute of Ophthalmology in Glasgow in the early 1980s. And he was doing transcleral exo-resections quite regularly, and I assisted him with many operations. And eventually, when I started doing them, it, it sort of came naturally. But in those days, it was a very big operation. It used to take three to four hours. Uh, there were quite a few complications retinal tears, a vitreous prolapse through the big scleral window, retinal prolapse, um, recurrences. And over the years, by gently refining different parts of the operation, these uh, obstacles have been overcome. So now it's rare to have a retinal tear unless the tumor has invaded the retina. And um, it's rare to have a recurrence because we always give adjunctive plaque radiotherapy afterwards. And so the operations now usually take less than two hours. That's with regards to exoresection. Another obstacle to exoresection has been the need for systemic hypotensive anesthesia. But um, 
with an expert anesthetist who does this regularly, that's no problem. Hypotensive anesthesia doesn't work as well with young, healthy patients because they've got a, a good blood supply. But I found that by cauterizing a few of the short posterior ciliary arteries near the optic nerve, then you can uh, control the hemorrhage much more easily. Then there's endoresection, where you don't just make a big trapdoor in the sclera, you make three tiny openings and um, remove the tumor through a retinotomy over the surface of the tumor. And Carl Grenwald will speak about that. He's much better qualified than I am. Thank you. I mean, endoresection or surgical resections are controversial. Um, there have been reported deaths about it. Can you sort of tell the audience what the biggest problem of endoresections is? Yes. Um, we quite happily injected air into the eye to flatten the retina after removing the tumor. And then in 2014, a group in South Africa reported a case of fatal gas embolism because the air went into a vortex vein and into the general circulation and the patient died uh, shortly after the operation. So air was abandoned and replaced by heavy liquid, perfluorooctane. But recently, there have been a few fatalities from gas embolism from the heavy liquid, because if the heavy liquid goes into the general circulation, it can vaporize to cause the same complications as air. Thank you. Another big controversy regarding this is the supposedly increased risk for metastatic disease. If you cut the tumor and basically dislodge tumor cells into the bloodstream, you overseen more than 200 endoresections. Have you seen that in your group of patients? No, we looked at uh, a series of patients to compare survival with uh, radiotherapy and we found no significant difference. But the problem was that even 200 patients isn't a bit large enough number. You need to have many more patients followed for many more years to confirm that hypothesis that the physical interventions do not cause metastasis. You know, previously, it was believed that even the trauma of enucleation caused metastatic disease. That was a Zimmerman hypothesis. And um, now, now it is believed that it's not the physical um, influences that are important, but the genetic influences. You see, cancer is a disease of the genes that go haywire, and uh, it's quite a, it seems to be quite a random process. And if you get lethal mutations, such as chromosome 3 loss, BAP1 deletion, and all that kind of thing, then you get metastatic disease, whether or not anybody goes near the tumor with a set of instruments. So metastasis is a complex biological phenomenon, very, very different from seeding, which is a passive process where, where the cells just disseminate locally. So uh, there's, there's no evidence that that endoresection actually causes dissemination of tumor cells. However, any eye-conserving treatment is associated with an increased risk of metastasis if the operation is 
unsuccessful in eradicating or sterilizing the tumor. If there's residual tumor, if there's a recurrence, there's a higher incidence of metastasis. And nobody knows whether it's the recurrence that causes the metastasis or whether the recurrence is only an indicator that the tumor is more dangerous. Very interesting. Thank you, Bertel. Now, swinging back to vitreoretinal surgery in oncology, Carl, uh, you've done more than 200 endoresections, and you do still do them about every eight weeks or so, I would say. Uh, can you tell us uh, your fastball technique for endoresection? Okay. So, obviously, the endoresection is just what it is. You, As Bertel said, you basically make the normal free ports. I, in the last few cases, I actually also put a chandelier in to help me with the managing of the hemorrhaging. It is basically not difficult surgery, but there are two parts of it that can be extremely difficult. Number one is if a patient has extensive exudative detachment, it's very difficult to create a posterior vitreous detachment. And my tip there is always to go for at the disc, even if you have to pull the retina away. I do not like to make internal drainage retinotomies because otherwise there's just vitreous in your way. Once you've created the posterior vitreous detachment and you've trimmed the vitreous nicely, then you just put your probe in, like Bertel said, you create a big crater and you cut the tumor away. I normally go as quickly as I can to the sclera and I try to keep the walls of a crater quite high and debulk as much as I can in the middle because if you cut the wall, then the blood will spill under the retina and that can be very difficult to remove. Another thing is, once you've removed all the tumor and you've cleared the bed, there's no tumor remaining, then becomes the most difficult part of operation, and that is the controlling of a hemorrhage. This can take really, really long, and that is why chandeliers are helpful, because you can have a flute needle in one hand and a quarter in the other hand, and then by increasing and decreasing the pressure, you can start the bleeding, see where it is, cauterize it, and then decrease the pressure to see for the next point. The helpful tip is to make the edge of the retina slightly larger than the cobalt, so you can identify the, the bit that, that leaks. Once you've done, removed the tumor, you've stopped the hemorrhage, this is when you put the, the heavy liquid in. And as you know, our policy is to leave a heavy liquid in for the shorter time as possible and never ever under high pressure. So the pressure will be 20 to 25 while we quickly perform the laser, which is the only purpose of a of a heavy liquid, and then we do a um, heavy liquid oil exchange. And that, in a nutshell, is it. And the, I almost forgot the most important thing, as we cauterize the vortex that is in the area of a tumor before we start. That's normally step number one. And then step number two is usually to do a cataract, a, a FACO, if it's required. It's not always required. But vortex vein uh, cauterization we consider quite important to, to prevent the embolization uh, related to the heavy liquids. Thank you, Carl. These are really, really great uh, tips and tricks for endoresections. Moving on to the last group of surgeries we are oncology uh, sees in daily life and probably the one that a normal VR surgeon might face in their daily life as they don't usually do biopsies or endoresections are problems like vitreous hemorrhage or retinal detachment after tumor treatment elsewhere. 
I think the most common one probably is a vitreous hemorrhage after radiotherapy uh, or other treatments. And uh, uh, Carl, again, you've done quite a few of them. Just uh, share our sort of your knowledge and what do you see when you go into an eye with a vitreous hemorrhage that had a melanoma treated beforehand? What's the most common cause for that? Proliferative radiation retinopathy? No, the most common cause, the, the ones I've done, is almost exclusively related to vitreous detached over the tumor. And it pulls on the tumor, and usually, due to extension of a tumor through the retina, it attaches to it, and that is what's causing the hemorrhage. I have never seen proliferative uh, retinopathy related to the treatment of a tumor, except maybe in patients that had vasoproliferative tumor, but not in melanomas. Oh, very, very interesting. And uh, exudative retinal detachment, how would you normally treat that? Those are really difficult, especially if a tumor were to extend right up to the, to the lens. In those patients, I put an, an, an AC maintainer, and then I will use, for example, a 25-gauge cannula that I put behind the retina and, make, and very carefully make sure that I drain the subretinal fluid into the fornix, but not under the conjunctiva. And then I go in as normal, and I will then manage the exudative detachment. These patients almost invariably require silicon oil, tamponade, to prevent the refilling of a detachment. Yeah, very important point. Thank you. Bertel, coming back to you, uh, when you have surgeries on eyes that had a melanoma treated before, and that includes phaco or glaucoma surgery, now going to this VR surgery, there's always a concern, the risk of seeding of tumor cells with the surgery. Have you experienced that in, in the long uh, time you looked at these patients? I've seen two patients that I can remember who've had localized subconjunctival seeding after tumor biopsy. So it's, the technique is important. And those patients were treated by excising the subconjunctival nodules that were tiny, just like pepper, and uh, or just a tiny little like an apple seed, so to speak, and then giving cryotherapy. And the treatment was successful. So with the risk of seeding, do you think, for instance, a vitreous hemorrhage after radiotherapy of a melanoma or retinal detachment and uh, leading basically to the question I'm sure you will cover in your keynote lecture, uh, OncoVR, should that be a specialized center or could any VR surgeon be a bit of oncologist? In other words, do you think these patients should be treated in a center, or is it okay to uh, operate on them elsewhere as well? Well, it's not for me to say what should not be done, but because every hospital is different and opportunities and constraints are different, and even, even different health services are, are different. But all I can say is that having an onco VR specialist really improves the care of these patients enormously. They can do biopsies very successfully. There's nothing more disappointing than an operation to take a tumor sample and then there isn't enough sample for the pathologist or the geneticist. Patients and everybody get extremely disappointed when that happens. And then uh, to understand all the technicalities regarding endoresection, these very complicated operations after eyewall resections, exoresections, and so on. One thing we haven't mentioned is um, diagnostic biopsies. 
And where there's no Onco VR service available, what a lot of um, oncologists seem to need to do is to refer the patients to a, a VR service, wait some time for the patient to have an appointment in the VR clinic, and then the patient has to wait for a date for the operation. And then it will probably be a very big operation with total vitrectomy, oil, and retinopexy, etc. Whereas in Liverpool, what I experienced was that if I saw a patient who needed a diagnostic biopsy on Monday morning, the biopsy was done on Monday afternoon or Tuesday morning, and then we got a, a result from the pathologist on Thursday. So that's really revolutionized everything instead of relying on systemic scans. Because even if there's a primary tumor somewhere else, all the systemic scans may be negative in more than 10% of patients. So you can't assume that something is a melanoma because all the systemic scans are negative. So another advantage of biopsy is that it gives an indication of where the metastasis is coming from. It doesn't just prove that it's a metastasis. Uh, you know, some oncologists refuse to treat patients with radiotherapy, etc., unless there's proof that the tumor is a metastasis. But but the biopsy also says where the metastasis is likely to be coming from, and so we can focus our scans and investigations in that area. Well, thank you, Carl, for your amazing tips and tricks in performing OncoVR, and thank you, Bertel, for your vision in setting up this field. I'm really, really looking forward to your keynote lecture at your retina. And uh, it's going to be a really a great uh, presentation. Thank you. And back to you, Jonathan. Well, thanks very much, Heinrich. And I, I can't agree more. Really, really interesting. Even as a, as a non-surgeon, non-retina specialist, I thought it was a fascinating discussion of all the pitfalls that can happen in such an exciting and uh, cutting-edge field. So, uh, Bertel, thanks very much. Carl, also, thank you very much for your insights. And don't forget, you can hear the keynote at the Uretina Congress in Amsterdam register at uretina.org. That's it from us on this episode of Talking Uretina. We'll see you next time.